Welcome to Making Oregon, the podcast that brings you conversations with innovators, makers, and groundbreakers from all across our state. They talk with us about what they're doing to make Oregon the best place we know to create a diverse and prosperous economy. Hi, everybody. Once again, I'm your host, Terry St. Marie, co-founder of Built Oregon. Today, our guest is Charlie Gilkey, founder and owner of Productive Flourishing. Charlie calls his company, which at its heart is the website ProductiveFlourishing.com, a community for the doers with the vision to see how the world could be, the smarts to figure out how to make it happen, and the grit to do the work. Now, we'll find out more about what's underneath the hood of that statement during our chat, but I want to tell you one more thing before we dive in. I love the way Charlie describes himself on his site. He says, if a mad scientist were to do a Freaky Friday experiment and cross an entrepreneur, army officer, and philosopher, I'd be what popped out of the tube. Wow. So with that description in mind, let's get this conversation started. Charlie, thanks for joining us today. Terry, I am pumped to be here, excited to see where this conversation goes. Yeah. Really, really honored to, to be a part of it. Thanks. Well, this is kind of cool because I've been on the other side of this where you've interviewed me for your podcast, which you could go ahead and give it a little pitch to. All right. So my podcast is it's new title. Like we rebranded it, right? Okay. So it's now um, Productive Flourishing. So if you go to the Apple Store or to the iTunes Store, you can find it there. And it's really... Um, I like to call it the behind-the-scenes story of learning to thrive and be a productive, flourishing co-creator of a better society. And really, um, what, what fires me up about the podcast is we go to those places where we often don't go. Because a lot of times in this world of entrepreneurship and change-making, mm-hmm. we tell about the hits. Right. But as you know, as a, as a leader and as an entrepreneur... Um, there are far more misses or blahs that yeah. happen and learning to navigate through those misses and blahs so that you get the hit and create the hit and, and amplify the hits. Like, that's where a lot of the magic happens. Wow, and you can find that on your site? You can find it on the site, ProductiveFlourishing.com. Um, if you go to forward, cla- forward slash podcast, you'll probably get redirected there. You can also find it in um, the iTunes library. Great. Well, thanks for that. It's good to be talking to you today, and in the context, in the, in the spirit of making Oregon, let's talk about you for a second. And I can't, as I said in my intro, I, I can't not talk about how you describe yourself, the Freaky Friday experiment thing. Um, yeah, How did you sort of take entrepreneur, army officer, philosopher, and, and come out with productive flourishing? Yeah, well, so... At the point that I started Productive Flourishing, I had reached that point in my life to where my ability to get stuff done was not meeting the task at hand. Mm. Um, I was a PhD candidate in philosophy, so I'm a social philosopher and ethicist. Um, but I was also an army logistics officer. Wow, what a combination. Right. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was I had my wife and we had a new home. And so we had all that sort of things. And I call these domains of life, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was this domain of life that was the military officer. There's this domain as this academic scholar. And there's a domain as this guy that's trying to be a good husband and friend to my wife and, you know, all those different types of things. And I just didn't have the skill set to meet all those demands. And so I did what any good military officer or scholar would do is I started looking at what are, how, how have other people done this? Right. Right. Because for any given thing that you're trying to do, um, it's unlikely, unless you're like Elon Musk, it's very unlikely that you're the first person to do that. Someone That's an else, interesting observation, yeah. Right. Someone else has tried to do what you're trying to do. Right. Someone else, like I'm not the first person with a rich life. I'm not the first Renaissance soul out there that's got a bunch of ambition. So I started reading, like, how are people doing this? And what I found was that I was having to do a lot of work to translate what I was finding into something that made sense for me as a person who was, on the one hand, really creative, but also really practical at the same time, right? How did you can't that- be a logistics officer in the army unless you have, yeah. Yeah, you can't do it. You no, you look, can't, you can't. Because at the end of the day, you got to move stuff. Right, you got to right. move people. Right. you got to lead and get things done. Sure. So you can't stay in the ivory tower. No. And as much as we like it, like would like to retreat to coming up with, you know, the 10-year vision statement and all those great things. And those are really great things. But at the same time, we had the mission that we needed to accomplish today. Yeah. Right? And so you did these things, you did these things not necessarily, it's interesting how you describe this because you went into the army or you t- 
became a, it took, took philosophy in school for what purpose originally? Um, so um, this is going to be a long, I'll make a long story short. Here. Okay. So I went to um, the United States Military Academy when I was 18. So I went to West Point when I was 18 and very quickly realized that that was not the path for me. Nothing against, you know, the academy, mm-hmm. but um, I realized midway through that this is, I've done things in the wrong order for me, right? Because I knew I knew where that road was going to go. I was going to come out, and I was going to be an army officer, and I was going to be a well-programmed machine at doing that. Um, but it seemed to me to make more sense to figure out who I was and where my space in the world was, and then go do that. And so at the time, I was like, the army is not going anywhere, right? Hasn't gone anywhere for a long time. I very much doubt. Yeah, right? that's right. That's but, an institution that will survive. But these critical years of my life, yeah. between being a, being a teenager mm-hmm. and between being a young man, mm-hmm. those expire, mm-hmm. right? And due to a combination of, of doing well in school and having a bunch of scholarships and fellowships on hold, I was able to slide right into getting my civilian education. And that ended up becoming in philosophy. And I did not intend for it to be that. Right? No. It sounds obvious in retrospect oh, when sure. I tell the story, but I didn't yeah. intend for it to be that. But I found that it was, um, part of it was, it was, it was one of the few fields where you didn't have to choose to learn just one thing. Oh. And so um, I was able to um, learn about physics and astronomy and biology and the philosophy of science. I was able to learn about um, religion and comparative religion and the philosophy of religion. I was able to learn about aesthetics. I was able to learn about ethics. I was able to learn about all these things, which for me at that point in my life, becoming that full flourishing human was the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So I got, um, I went through school and then in my senior year, it came back up for me. It's like, okay, now what do I want to do about this whole army thing? So um, at that point, I joined, I joined the Army National Guard um, in Arkansas. And this was about the time that we were figuring out, that the, that the reserve components were figuring out that um, they were becoming an operational force, which means for non-civilians, which means that when the Army goes somewhere, the National Guard and Reserve Command goes. And that's the strategy. I see. Um, and so my, my original intent of um, serving my state and serving my nation um, in that way morphed into becoming um, a military officer. I ended up deploying for Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004, 2005. And part of my job there was to, um, well, I started out as a tactical combat com- a tactical combat convoy commander. So basically, I delivered stuff through um, combat zones and ambush zones. To the front line. To the front line. Um, but about midway through that, I got pulled up to the battalion level, which is the unit above that, and they wanted me to write plans and um, do strategic overwatch of the battlefield and um, to create the after-action reports that happened when our um, troops went under combat or when they had um, some activity that that led to injury, death, or accident. Wow. Talk about a sharpening of analytical skills. Oh, man. Um, What I say about the deployment is it was simultaneously the worst and best time of my life. I'm sure. Um, but it really took all these skills that I had learned as a philosopher and just honed them to be razor sharp, right? Powers of observation, thinking things through, thinking things through mm-hmm. three di- three levels deep, what I like to say, three levels deep and three steps ahead. Wow. Doing that and figuring out what was going on because my job later on as a deployed officer was to, you know, one of our convoys would get hit, they'd come back home. I'd do all of the interviews and I'd repaint the picture of the battlefield and what happened and what they did to be successful or not. And then turn that into tactics, techniques, and procedures for all of the rest of our convoys and all the rest of our units and all the rest of the theater so that when the next unit encountered that, they had an updated operating systems of of responses and strategies and tactics to be able to... um, to survive that particular encounter and fundamentally bring more people home. Wow, so you were working through processes that 
Uh, I don't mean to jump ahead a little oh, bit no, before yeah. we jump back again, but it, it, this process you were going through then seems eerily familiar as I understand what you do today, but we'll get to that. But <laughs> Yeah, well, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so I, I developed this ability to be able to synthesize a lot of information right, right. into new strategies and tactics and procedures that enabled our teams to um, get troops and equipment where they needed to go on time with fewer casualties and, and you know get everybody back home. Um, and so when I came back from theater, um, that, that's a pretty unique skill set. Yes. And so um, the state kept me on in different roles in a sort of a three-quarter time position mm -hmm. to do exactly that. And so I went on um, to um, design joint force training um, around surviving um, combat, or surviving convoys in theater. So we ended up you know, teaching this to people in the Air Force, teaching this to people at the Canadian Air Force and some wow. of our allies and things like this. Now, not to brag, but the thing about it was I learned this when I was 24, 25, sure. and 26. Yeah. And so um, that, um, once I came back from theater, so the pullback in the philosophy thing, so I actually got deployed while I was a graduate student in philosophy. Okay. So I was going through... I um, didn't even have my master's yet mm -hmm. in for, I think, a year or so, mm -hmm. and then I deployed. So when I came back, um, two weeks after coming back, I would not recommend anyone do this, by the way. Okay. Um, I, I learned some hard lessons. <laughs> this, but two weeks after I came back home, I was actually back in class. Oh, my gosh. Right. I was back in class doing two the thing. Two weeks later. Right. Two weeks later, I'm like, you know, my life has been um, that, and I want to get my life back on track. Right. Um, now, I would say with, you know, 10 to... 12 years distance from that. Yeah. And my life was never off track. And when did you get married during all that? So we got married in 2003. And so I got married in 2003, deployed. We moved to Nebraska for grad school. Right. Um, got activated in the beginning of 2004. Deployed um, in mid-2004. Um, spent a year away from my wife while she was in Nebraska by herself. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if you've ever heard any veteran stories, you, you know how much their families endure as well. And so my wife had moved to Nebraska from Arkansas, eight hours away from family, didn't know anybody. Mm. Um, then I was gone for essentially a year and a half between activation, training, and deployment. Came back two weeks later, back in school. Um, but that changed, you know, a lot of that changed my perspective about my place in the world because it dawned on me mm -hmm. on many evenings standing in the sand or you know right. looking looking two miles down the road to make sure that that you know there wasn't anything ahead um that my philosophical colleagues and the academics are some of the people who are best suited to address the situations that leaded us or that led us into that particular situation mm -hmm. um and furthermore what sense does it make to go and learn tools about understanding the world and communicating with people and compelling and creating compelling arguments that, that eventually lead to us thriving, but to have that so separate from the people who are on the ground defending freedom right. and or you know advancing causes or very like through their acts of bravery and duty, minimizing the suffering of people. And so when I came back, um, a lot of, I had changed a lot. Yeah, but, I can imagine. But one of the things that, that really became clear to me was like, it, it doesn't make any sense for me to critique the academic institution and my peers when I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, what am I doing mm -hmm. to make this world better? And so I sat with that for a while, and eventually that let me know that being a full-time academic was not, wasn't the right fit for me because I saw... Yeah, I mean, I could see you being a teacher. I mean, like a professor, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. still a teacher, but, yeah. you know, that particular place in time, yeah. I knew that there, were, there, there was more that I could do. Um, and so I started thinking about, okay, um, so, so there are a lot of threads there, I understand. But part of the other thing about it was I was still wanting, pursuing, completing my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I was still this army officer with now these more responsibilities than I've ever had. And so no matter what I did, I had to figure out how I was actually going to get this done day in, day out. 
And so I started translating so much of this work from getting things done from David Allen to the seven habits, you know, um, of... Well, you're a big reader, too. You like to read oh, a lot man, of stuff. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've slowed down a little bit, but enough that it's not unusual for me to read between 10 to 20 books a month. Wow. Um, 10 to 20 books a month. Yeah. Um, and I, so, in all honesty, I've trained myself how to speed read because, again, you got to get a lot of You have to. You have to. You have to. Especially when you're, when, you're, and when you're straddling so many different things. So, I yeah. started... I started teaching people online. I did like any good near millennial would do and I started a blog, right? Sure. Right. And this, what, when was this now? This was 2007. Wow. I say, I'm going to start a blog. Yeah. And, and so just for the listeners out there, um, if you're already at your capacity of getting things done, adding a business to that is not really the smart way to do that. No, I can imagine not. <laughs> um, but so I started sharing this online and it really got picked up. And, and you were just writing like Little stories, little blog posts about what you learned. I'm writing or? blog posts about what I'd done, what experiments I had tried, what was working for me, what wasn't working for me. Um, and I started creating tools for people um, because I, the other thing I was super frustrated by. Um, so let's roll back to 2007 real quick. Mm-hmm. This was before the really good apps that we have these days. Sure. And were you here in Oregon? I, was, I wasn't here. I okay. moved in 2010. Okay. Right. And so this was before we had a lot of these great tools like Asana and Trello and Basecamp and things like that. Right. Ah, uh, yes. And so this is back in the days when you had to go to Office Depot. And Social buy was just being born. I that, mean, really, I don't know Facebook if we're going to get there, but I would love to talk about that. Because yeah, that, sure. I think that's changed so many things that we're still coming to grips with. Yeah. Um, and so I was super frustrated because I would go into Office Depot. Mm-hmm. and buy a planner, like a Franklin Covey sort of planner. And I'd be super frustrated because I'd be like, great, you just gave me a calendar. Right. That's not helpful. Right. right. Google Calendar did that pretty well at the time. I don't need another calendar. I need a tool that helps me um, capture my intentions for this, la- for this period of time, convert it into projects, and then convert those projects into things that I can put on my schedule mm. to get done. And at the time, there really wasn't anything out like what I was. I mean, I mean, there were things out there. I'm not going to be naive enough to say there nobody had ever done that. Right. But it didn't fit the way that this sort of what appears to be complex, creative, but pragmatic person thought about the world. And fundamentally, it didn't teach you how to do this chunking and sequencing and things like that. That that are really some of the I mean, the unsexy things, the unsexiest things in the world, but they are the difference between what enables people to get stuff done and make change happen versus the people who are dreaming but overwhelmed because they don't know how to do anything with those dreams. So um, so I started creating the planners, and then, surprisingly to me, entrepreneurs and small business owners found my work this is uh, not so. Th- the calling found you. The calling the other found way me. Around. That's interesting. Noticing a trend, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And so, um, I originally started my work for academics because that's who I was. Right, right. right? Um, but as it went on, I was like, wait a second. There's a broader application here, and it was the entrepreneurs and small business owners that came to me, and they were like, oh, this is changing things for me. And by the way, will you help me grow my business? Will you help me with my my planning? And I'm like, I have no idea how to do that. Uh-huh. I'm not trained in business. What are you talking about? All this marketing and sell stuff? I, so there you were. There I was. 2007. <laughs> all this education, all this experience. No, this is good. And so you put a blog out there. And what did you call it? Is it Productive Flourishing at the time? Or? It, so it went through two iterations. Yes. Um, do you want to hear the embarrassing iterations? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I won't tell anybody except for people yeah, listening. Except for the people listening. So um, the first was Academic PPD. Dot com. Now you're thinking, what the hell does PD, PPD mean? <laughs> yeah, this is the problem, right? So <laughs> I was so immersed in all this literature. Yeah. It was productivity and personal development. That's what the PPD stood for. You buried the lead. No shit. <laughs> right? <laughs> As you might imagine, <laughs> that did not lead. go very well for yeah, two reasons. Yeah. No one understood what the hell PPD was. Yeah. And academics were not a good market. Right, but I figured audience. out they didn't know what the PPD was, so, I'll, so I'm going to get smarter, right? Yeah, so the right. second iteration of what's now Productive Flourishing was life management for, act, for academics. 
because so many academics didn't know how to manage their life. Okay, that was a little bit more specific. A little bit more specific, yeah. um, but really long name. Okay. And then once I figured out, like, wait a second, the people showing up are not academics. So you started getting these po uh, blog comments and Bloggers, things from entrepreneurs and, and business yeah. people. And so... Like, help me. Help me. Um, and you didn't know, you know, you're like, I don't know a thing about business. I don't know a thing about business. But it turns out I knew a lot more about business um, than you I sure thought. sure did. Because so many of the skills that I had learned as mm -hmm. a military officer and as, a, as someone out there making this stuff happen were fundamentally the problems that most businesses face under a different wrapper. I mean, communication, mm -hmm. team building, mm -hmm. strategy execution, um, the tenacity to see things through, and the prudence to know when something's not working and switching to something else, right? Um, systems and procedures that, that build success, right? You do not move at the pace that the modern army moves with, as a leader without knowing those. Sure. Um, and, you know, there's sort of the, the line here where... where the little bit of backstory, because I was trying to make it brief, is um, as I was um, progressing as an army officer, I get handed more and more challenging opportunities, as is, this happens, right? And so I became the second-in-command of the unit that I deployed with, and we beat the state's record for redeployment transition time which means when troops come back overseas, how long does it take to reset all the equipment? How long does it take to get people where they need to be and get the unit back for their state, ready for their stateside mission. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so that was pretty cool. It had a great unit, great commander. And so we did that. But this, then when I took company command, I was taking company command of a, of a troop, of a unit that was redeploying. We beat my prior unit's record for redeployment time. So you just kept raising the bar. Yeah. I kept raising the bar. Um, and so, um, I had learned how to jump into a high operations tempo environment with a lot of chaos and a lot of moving pieces and then get things moving. Right. And then leadership, you had to have you had to have some great leadership qualities. Yeah, because you that. can't do it yourself. No. You no. can't do it yourself. And so um, and it taught me a lot of of things that are fundamental business skills, right? Fundamental things that we need to learn as founders and executives. Um, and so my original thing was like, yeah, I don't know a lot about this. But then the entrepreneurs and small business owners kept hounding me, kept hounding me, kept hounding me um, to where I eventually had to figure out. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Naomi Dumford from Itibiz, um, because I was working with her on a project and that project was super successful for her. And um, <laughs> she said, Charlie, um, so I'm going to write up why it was so successful. And I'm going to write that you coached and, and helped me through this. And if you don't get your coaching page up, we're both going to look like assholes. <laughs> that, was, that was when I eventually hung my shingle. Because before then, I was like, I don't know. Like, this whole thing is new to me. Yeah. Um, and so that... So, so for you, had like that, a, you had someone that really pushed you along, you know, in, in Naomi with that. Yeah, and really pushed me along um, in a lot of ways. And just, you know, the people that I had been working with, they're... You know, here's how it came up. And again, you can edit out whatever is, is not relevant for people. But We're not really severe editors. Okay. You can ask Jamie. <laughs> and, so, and so what came up was um, I would be like, you know, someone would say, hey, I've got this idea. Will you help me with it? And I was like, yeah. yeah, that sounds fun and yeah. interesting. Yeah. Sure, let's talk about it. And so we talked about it and they were like super you know, like jazzed by what we talked about. It really, really helpful for them. They didn't ask me the question like, so when are we talking next? And I'm like, what do you mean next? Like, we're done here. It was like, no, what, what, when are we talking next? I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is not my job. Like, I don't have this figured out, right? Until eventually it became one of those things. Like, how do you create a coaching and consulting retainer for things? I had to figure that out, right? And so Naomi was a huge catalyst for that because at, her, at the time, her, her blog was, was influential, still is. Yeah, I've I, I've met, I met her a few times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really she's rather persuasive. Person. Oh yeah, she's rather oh, yeah. persuasive. She's a force of nature. She, she is a force of nature. And so, um, you know, so to put a timestamp on this, this is two thousand mid two thousand um, no end of two thousand eight yeah. early two thousand nine timeframe. Um, and I just kept doing my jam right, and so I so you were trying to make. I mean, what were you doing for like putting putting food on the me, table? Yeah. 
Um, I was teaching philosophy. Okay. So right. Yeah. Um, I also had a fellowship, so I was teaching philosophy, had a fellowship that put a little bit of food on the table, right. just right. a little bit. Right. In, in case you've ever wondered, philosophers don't make much. I so I get and, and so graduate students who are that's philosophers. Why, that's why I was an accounting major, Charlie. That's what that's what I did. Well, so yeah. you had to figure it out. I did. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that, and then working um, as the working in the guard and working with the army. Mm-hmm. There were there are certain ways in which I've, I I wouldn't say I unlocked the code because that sounds um, that sounds incorrect. But I what I was doing was um, in demand for the army at the time, and so basically I can. Um, say, hey, I'm going to show up and do this training and I can get paid for doing that training. Oh, I see. Right. And so, or they'd be like, here's the training that you're delivering, um, Captain. And I'd be like, okay, that's the training that I'm delivering that day. <laughs> right. And so those two, um, those two sources were what my income stream was at the time. And because of the ways we had worked it, they were sufficient. Right. Angela was working. Right. My wife, Angela, was working. We were doing just fine. Um, and so... One of one of the things that happens when you become a small business owner is, and there's this tension that you got to really watch out, right? Because if you start your business and you have to start earning revenue that keeps the lights on and pays you quickly, that puts a lot of pressure on the business. Yeah, sure it does. Um, however, so that's one side of the tension because you you know you got to make money in the business, you got to put food on the table, um, and increase that pressure. On the other hand, if you have too much money. And it's not something that um, really is going to move the needle for you in your life. It's easy to put off the business development. It's easy to put off the sales. It's easy to put off the hard work that can sometimes be be challenging and scary Mm -hmm. to make your business grow. And so in this time frame, I was in sort of that sweet spot in that um, it was really interesting and fascinating for me. Um, I was good at it. I was making some money from it, but I didn't have the pressure that I had to pay my entire, you know, portion of right. my household expensive. And so it was a really good spot in that time that I could take my time and, and write and, and do that. So um, in 2000, at the end of 2009, early 2010, um, my wife decided that she was done with academia as well. I had already knew, I mean, as I said earlier, I'd already known that my time was short because um, you discovered this thing and you, you had to discovered- have a sense that that would be eventually well, what you get into or not. Well, or, see, or you were like still debating that. Or? I was still debating it because, you know, when you, when you listen to a lot of people's stories about small business, some people start a business because they hate their jobs. Right. Right. Yeah. I didn't start PF because I hated my job. I was actually good at both of my jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I knew those jobs were not the sort of full contact life that I wanted to live. I see. The, and so uh, the accidental entrepreneur. Absolutely. <laughs> That's you, huh? And so for me, and it's still the question that drives me, yeah. is with what I have today, what's the most abundant set of possibilities that I could create? How, how, am what I do, how is what I'm doing today building a better life for me and those around me? And it very quickly became clear um, that this path of entrepreneurship and growing productive flourishing and, and doing what I'm doing now was the best way for me to play the deck of cards that I had and that I was trading up to get. Mm-hmm. And so um, academia went pretty quickly because I knew that, w- that was not going to be my biggest play. Um, and the military followed um, because I also knew that as, as, as proud as I am to be a veteran and to be a prior service member, um, even, well, I, I had gotten to the point, and Terry, you know this about me, like, I I tend to play to win, mm-hmm. right? Yes, Sorry. you do. <laughs> and I realized that for me to win to the degree that I wanted to in the Army, um, I would either need um, to, can, to sort of mothball PF so that I can go full-time either in the reserves or, or active duty. Right. Um, that, that was really my option at the point, right? I'd reached that point. Um, and given where I was in my life, I did not want to go back into active duty service. It was not going to be a good fit for my family. And so um, that that made really the only choice sure. was that I needed to get out and resign my commission. So I exited the Army as a captain in 2010, which is the same year that I moved to Portland. Um, Why Oregon? 
You want the short answer or you want the long answer? Well, I'll have to try the short because I have a few more things I have to ask you. And, so you know, I was reading, people's t- attention spans don't last. They're, they're like, okay, I'm done with this guy. Um, so I was reading Rise of the Creative Class by Richard Florida. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the thesis in Rise of the Creative Class is that um, the biggest predictor of um, the, the biggest predictor of a creative person's thriving is where they live. And he lists a bunch of different cities in there that were really good creative hubs. And that's the thing. If you're a creative person living in the creative hub is one of the biggest predictors of your happiness and your well-being. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on that for a second. That's interesting. Okay. And so um, he gave a list of cities, and one of those cities was Portland, Oregon. And um, so my wife and I, we started looking at some of the other cities that resonate. And so, you know, you have your standards, New York, Miami, right, San Francisco, yeah. Los Angeles, Seattle, Chicago. You have all these places. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew I didn't want to live in the South again. Um, I grew up in Arkansas, so I was done with that. Um, New York is not my jam. California is not my jam. And so that left um, Portland, Phoenix, and Austin. And Austin, Texas. And so... Um, we flew out, never been to Portland before, and we were coming down I-5 um, from the airport. Yeah, and windows are down in the in the car and everything like that. And I look over at the at my wife, and she looks over at me. We kind of nod, and we're like, "We're moving here." On the freeway? On the freeway? Were you in traffic? We were in tra- yeah. Well, it wasn't the traffic like <laughs> it is now. But yeah. On the I five. Yeah, and so you we didn't had, even get to the Portland side. We didn't, we didn't even get to Portland side. Any place else? And so we we had prepared for this contingency, uh-huh. and so we had coordinated with the real estate agent. I see. And then we were going to come, and if we liked the place, and if it felt good, we were going to like call her and say, "Hey, show us some houses." Yeah. So um, we looked at each other, and you know, I'm driving. Angela calls our real estate agent, Larie Kreiser, by the way, or fantastic real estate okay. agent. Larry Kaiser. Um, and um, we started looking at houses the next day. And I kid you not, Terry, um, we looked at a bunch of houses, a bunch, a bunch of houses, and um, picked one that we loved, but it was a last minute sort of effort. And right. we, are, we are at the airport shoving in our bid for this home, right, at the business center, right, at wow. faxing. And this is before Wi Fi was on planes and everything, right? right. And so we put that bid in. Got on the plane and had no idea if that was going to be our home. Wow. It was our home. Wow. Um, but we didn't really have a plan B, right? We were we going to fly back out and find another home. That was the one that we wanted to buy. And that's wow. The one that so this buy. community made it easy for you to come here, first of all. And it, it was obviously somewhat serendipitous based on reading a book and it had a list. But you just knew it when you got here. Just knew it when and I got it here. sounds like the community cooperated by getting you that house right away. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we sold our home Fisbo in in Nebraska. Yeah, and um, we expected it to take a couple of months. It took us two weeks, um, and we sold on that home. And the closing periods for both houses ended up such that we were um, homeless. Now, not homeless in in a way that um, you know, like how we're dealing with homeless in Portland, but. Um, we were staying in and out of hotels and corporate corporate apartments and didn't know when we were going to get into our home here. So mm. we were homeless in that sense. Wow. Um, which is, by the way, not an ideal period to run business. I know there are a lot of nomads that are location independents and do this every day. But for me, totally not my Well, job. moving, starting a business, all these little things. and that, All that, these little things. It's this most stressful situations. And a lot of people tend to want to combine them all, it seems to me, <laughs> just like you. Well, it would make sense to do them one at a time. And, and I mean, that's what I would encourage most people to do. Yeah, but you was an, this was an enabling community, it sounds like. And, Very and I, enabling. Now I have to ask, obviously, the begs the question. Has it turned out the way you'd hoped? Is it true what you read in a sense that has Oregon... Since this is making Oregon, I have to I have to ask that question because uh, I I tend to ask everybody this. I mean, did did the state and the community feed that feed what you're doing in the way that you expected? Um, I'll just leave it there. Did it? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're currently at the point to where there's only one other place in the United States that, that Angela and I could imagine living, um, and that's in Hawaii. But it's hard to compete with Hawaii in, at any time. But well, the no reason we, the there's reason, no gray there. There's yeah. no snow. There's no gray. But the reason we have not been able to move to Hawaii is because of the community here in in Oregon, because of the opportunities. In, in Portland, I, I don't think Oregonians 
and maybe Portlanders understand the unique, maybe they do, but they don't understand this unique confluence of um, old industry, manufacturing, shipping, Mm -hmm. new industry through tech. Mm -hmm. Um, You have agriculture. Mm -hmm. You have the, the staple small business core. Right, you have creative services here. You have, you know, the makers. You have this wonderful confluence of industries and diversity and and things that that doesn't exist in a lot of other places. If you've never lived in, say, Fort Smith, Arkansas, where I grew up, we don't have a lot of that. Right. You know, there are certain places like this is, and even if you move to San Francisco, San Francisco lacks some of that. Mm-hmm. Right? If you move to New York City, right, there's a you there's some magic happening here, right? Where um, you can pick just about any business style and find a place for it to work in Oregon, in Portland. And you can't do that all over the yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, I often call this the long tail. I think I've said this to you. It's the long tail capital of the world. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody's read the <laughs> yeah. long tail, but you should. That's an, and we're dropping book names here. Anderson. Yeah, Chris Anderson. And Chris Anderson. And I think... Um, uh, the long tail thrives so well here because you can create your niche markets here because it's a receptive to it. And it's one of those unique places where you surely can. And and I, I think it's an underappreciated part of, of of the state. So thanks for ratifying that. I think our audience should hear that. And and but I, but I, but then so okay, so you you found your place. Mm-hmm. It's turned out that way. We went, we zoomed ahead, but I want to zoom a little bit back again. Okay. So, so you're 2010, you're here 2011. So, uh, sort of walk us through how you sort of built what you were doing into what you have today. Um, there's two stories here. Um, one story is right as soon as we got here. We actually went through quite a bit of um, hardship, right, between some health challenges with my wife. Um, we were in a car accident in, in 2013 or so. Um, and so right as soon as we got here and all these transitions, we ended up having some, you know, some pretty hard times actually. Um, and it's only been recently that we're able to talk about that due to sort of the wrapping up of that car case and things like that. So I wish I could say like I got here and it was one of those happily ever after scenarios. Um, but what we did was we got here and, um, started thinking, okay, um, we've got this online business that can exist anywhere in the world. However, we also have this precious and magical opportunity to build in this community that we love, that we want, that we can see staying here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's worth fighting for. And for me, that has multiple meetings, right? Mm -hmm. That community worth fighting for. Um, And so... Um, we also learned that um, when we are in Nebraska, like to be an academic means to be a transient in some ways, to be really in some sure. ways divorced from your community. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to put roots down. And so um, we started networking, and just to use that term, relationship building. Who do, who's in our community? Now, we, another reason that Portland won for us is that we already had friends that lived out here. Mm-hmm right, through our online business, right? And so we were, we, we sort of had the yeast for community. Yeah, the world shrunk, right? So, so I think a lot of people are in that situation now where they're going to know somebody in most of these communities if, they, if they've been on social and they use social. Yeah, and so, I mean, successes in life. Mm-hmm. Where you live, mm-hmm. so the rise of the creative class there, but also who you know, right? And sometimes it's not just who you know, it's who knows you, right? That's even more important. And what do they know you for? And that stuff doesn't happen organically because that's the funny thing is that, um, you know, my, my mentor Seth, you know, will often say of, of sort of online fame is like, you know, online fame plus 50 cents will get you coffee somewhere, right? Um, it doesn't actually move the needle in, in, right. in communities. Now, what it does do is open up doors, sure, right? So you have to leverage that in different ways. Um, but... So we just said, you know what, it's, it's time to plant our roots and build a ground game here. And where do we do that? Like, you know, we joined the Portland Business Alliance is one of the places that we learned. We, we joined. We joined a lot of other networking groups. Um, and uh, We were active with the SBDC too, right? Act, yeah. So the, actually, I, I started teaching 
um, at the SBDC because I joined Portland Business Alliance, mm-hmm. and they were talking about their small business management program. Right. And I took the advanced version of that, and then because of um, a bunch of reasons that we probably don't have time to talk about, um, they asked me to teach courses on strategic customer development and um, systems for business success. Once a teacher. Do what? Always a teacher. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, yeah, right? Yeah, How yeah. do you find the container right, right. That, that really lets you do what, what, what you're really capable of doing? So I ended up teaching at SBDC, mm-hmm. um, getting involved with some you know, different nonprofits like the Wayfinding Academy. Um, and you know, there are several people, Terry, you're one of them, but when they say like, hey, there's this person I want you to meet, I just meet them and talk to them, see what's and going on. And that's informed and helped and assisted in making those business decisions that you've made to add, let's say, you know, you started with these planners, but you do podcasts, you <laughs> yeah. do consulting, straight out consulting work now, right? Yeah. And yeah. You, so you built this portfolio, this brand around productive flourishing, but it sounds like the brand, devel- as part of that brand development, it was it was critical to sort of be that grounded part of the community, pick up things learn things, spread yeah. your brand here to, yeah. to road test it. To uh, Is this like a proving ground for a lot of stuff you're doing? It sounds it, to me. It does. Well, so there's several things going on. That I, works I, beyond here when you go online. and um, I think the either or thinking that we have about like offline or brick and mortar businesses versus online businesses trips a lot of people up. Yeah. Because it's a both and. I will teach things and learn things um, through the... So so I think in terms of air game and ground game, like any good officer would, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when you think of of the air game that we've got going through Protective Flourishing, yes, that lets me um, try out an idea in mass with 20,000 people at a time. Right. Um, Or to amplify that through my colleagues and, and reach 6 million people through that, Right. Um, and so that gives me a lot of feedback and testing ground. But at the same way, like I can teach at the Wayfinding Academy and teach a concept there and get that real-time interaction from people to see that it's hitting and then echo that back to that same community. And so they feed both ways, actually. Sure. They feed both ways. I can learn um, some of the business building strategies that I um, partner with clients to use um, that are really specialized to online business can actually be cross-purposed much like what I've been doing with the military stuff, for local businesses. For instance, um, email marketing, right? Uh, Who doesn't do that? A lot of small businesses don't do that, Terry. Why? <laughs> this is not pre-programmed, everybody. Why? Why don't they? Why it seems should? hard. Yeah. They don't know what to do. Yeah. They're busy and overwhelmed. Um, they don't understand the value that it has for the business. Um, so... But isn't that passe, Charlie? Isn't email marketing like so 2005 or 2008? Um, still to this day, email marketing is one of the best conversion tools that you have better. It trumps social media. So, I mean, I, I, I very rarely am going to say everyone out there listening, do this, don't do that. Right. But I'm saying if you're out there and you're working your tail off on social media um, and you're wondering whether it matters, like, shrink that time in half or a third and spend that same amount of time on email marketing. Um, and um, if it weren't the middle of the summer, I would bet money that your returns are going to be far better with email marketing than with social media. Now, if you are a social media marketing business, you can forget everything I just said, <laughs> right? But just, I mean, imagine yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Imagine this. You've got these loyal customers coming in yeah. every day to get coffee or to, or to buy your favorite mug or right. whatever, yeah. right? We want to know when there's something new. Yeah. And what are you going to do? You're going to compete with everybody else on Facebook? Yeah. And whatever is going on with Trump today, right? To get my attention? Yeah. Or you're going to say, "Hey, we've got a new coffee blend. Come check it out." Right? So, well, it's I, part of building a, a relationship with your customer, right? It's absolutely part of building a relationship with your customer. And um it, it's really one of those things to where um I think it's low-hanging fruit for a lot of people. Mm. Um and I can I can go on for a long time with it, but that's one of those things again yeah. that it's um, low cost. It like anything else, it takes a while to learn, mm-hmm. but the dividends for that are huge, right? Yeah, but see this. See, I'll, I'll step back for a second because we just sort of drill down into one thing. But I think 
if I if I say may sort of create the connection point to all, all of our conversations today from the start to this is please that, do because I don't know what that is. It, well, it is when you describe what you did in the military and how you took. I mean, I'll I'll really truncate this. How you took stuff in, processed it, and spit it back out. I think that's kind of the terminology. That, yeah, that's that's. And so it seems as though that's you know if you want to get down to the essence of what you do, Charlie Gilkey. And I, and I, I know this too, because I've thrown you a lot of stuff of conversations, and, and I think that's what you do best, is that you take a lot of the stuff, we, people like myself, I have problems with my business, I have problems with this, and you put a different, and you take it and you spit it back out in a way, I think, that, that sort of makes it actionable and makes more sense. And that's you, because you want people, as I think you say, um, and uh, see this, talk about symmetry, right? So I, Brought back to so the community for the doers with the vision to see how the world could be, the smarts to figure out how to make it happen, and a grit to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so that's a thread to me that you sort of apply to yourself. Um, but now it seems like in every conversation, you can play this 40 some minutes now, it's going to be back, is that that's, that's kind of what you do. And so you, you found something that just fits so much in your wheelhouse, but but it, again, it was still accidental, which I still love. It's that the business side of that just came because you were just offering practicalities. And I think the other lesson, if I may, is this whole issue of that people that maybe come to you, and I'll, I'll ask you this. It's like, I don't know anything about business. Help me. Mm-hmm. And how I think I know how you would answer that, but how would you answer that? So... Um Assuming they're already in business, do I get to assume that? I don't. I, right. I started a business, I have this but idea, I really but I don't really know how to do this business. Yeah. Um, so I, I think people jump to the how before they jump to the why and the what too soon. Yeah. Right. So, really, what I would say, okay, got it. Right. I understand there's a lot to understand. Where are you trying to go? Mm-hmm. What have you tried to do to get there? And what works and what what's worked and what hasn't worked? Let's start there. Let's let's abstract away from this. I don't know anything about business. Right. Um, because you can't go anywhere from there. Right? right. And you can't learn about business in quotes. You can learn about parts of the business, right? right? And if you if we look at it that way, say, okay, um, I've got a great product. I'm thinking of makers, right? I have a great product, right. but people aren't buying it. Right. What do I do? I don't know anything about business. Okay, that's a marketing and sales problem. We can hone in on exactly what that is, right? right? Or, hey, I've got this service and a lot of people want it, but I can't serve all the people. Okay, that's a recruiting, staffing, and training issue, right? We can work on just those pieces of the puzzle. And these are all learnable skills. And so one of the things that fires me up over and over again is is when, you know, when people approach it as a domain that is beyond their ability to understand, right? And when we, I think when we start and say, look, Yes, I don't. I'm not the best at this right now. Right. However, I can learn. I'm not smart. Right, and, and I, I know think, where I'm going. And I think I think you have innate skills that you might not even realize you have, which is what you did. This is what this is the yeah, connection that's what I was going to say. What yeah. do what do you know yeah, how to right, do really, exactly. really well, and right. how do we leverage that? Right, exactly. Right, because I think that's the other thing is that um, especially in in small business and sort of bootstrap world, we get to the point to where we want to do everything ourselves. Right, and if we don't know how to do it, then it forever mystifies us. Right, but that's the you know going alone is the hardest way to grow a business, no matter what business you're in. Yeah, right. Yes, going together might be slower and it might be a little bit more expensive. But no matter who we are as people, we will reach a growth point that we cannot overcome because of our own limited capacities. Mm. And the art of leadership and the art of management is learning to organize other people's talents, energies, and skills to overcome that next greatest growth challenge, right? Mm. Because we can always do more together than we can separately. We can always do more together than we can separately. And so that's the point where you have to say, as as the small business owner, as the entrepreneur, is reaching this next goal worth it to me enough to receive help and support from someone else who knows how to do it? And if it's not, then maybe it's all right to be where you are. If you know, if it is worth overcoming that, then 
you know, one of the things I tell all my students, um, whether they're, you know, my students at Wayfinding Academy or whether uh, my clients, it's like whenever you have a how problem, I want you to find a who solution. Whenever you have a how problem, find a who solution, right? Mm -hmm. Because what we do is we don't know how to do something. And then we try to go out and figure out how to do it. Way smarter to figure out who knows how to do that thing and talk to them. And you may not be able to afford or you may not have access to the best person in the world. But you probably know someone who's better than you are. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That you can work with or that you can barter with or that you can pay. Because, you know, the fundamental thing about being a business owner is it can be incredibly lonely when you try to do everything by yourself. Yes. Um, and again, we are always stronger and more capable together than we are separately. But we have to get over this idea of the self-made person or of this sort of Herculean person that does everything by themselves and lifts up the world. That's a great story. Um, but in reality, it's a really hard one to live. Yeah. Right? And when you look at what makes businesses great, I mean, yes, there are those charismatic leaders that can make it happen, right? And they have a big vision and a bold story. That's a small percentage of the cases. What you typically find are these quiet, driven, committed people that have figured out how to build a team around themselves. And, you know, sort of pulling full circle, that's what I realize now that I didn't realize a decade ago is that it's not about business. It's about people. Charlie Gilkey, um, I am plumb out of time. But I think that it was the most brilliant way. You even pre-answered my question about advice. I usually typically ask about what advice you can give. I think you just did it. Um, look, everybody, there's more to this guy even than in this 50 minutes I think we just spent talking. And I, and it, you should go to his site, ProductiveFlourishing.com. You have a, a treasure trove of things there, of, of more of this kind of stuff. I invite you to go there, listen to his podcast, um, Charlie, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me in any time, Terry. Great. Thanks. Our special thanks today to Charlie Gilkey, founder of Productive Flourishing. I'm sure you enjoyed that conversation. And if you want to find out more, just go to his website, ProductiveFlourishing.com. Believe me, you'll be happy you did. Thanks again for listening to Making Oregon, a production of Built Oregon, the media company, and nonprofit organization that tells stories that connect, instigate, and support entrepreneurs all across the state. Find out more about our online magazine and our upcoming live events by visiting builtoregon.com. Once again, I'm your host, Terry St. Marie. Our engineer is Jamie Colazzo, and our producer is Davia Larson. We'll be back soon with more makers, doers, and innovators sharing stories of how they are making Oregon. Great.